0: Yep. I don't true. mind, I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah, so, this feels, this feels The sick. moment you decide, <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, uh, I but, don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> always edit. <laughs> so this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, alright, so the plan here is to host a podcast, uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, a History of Christian Theology. Yes. Um, and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Grace and peace to you from a history of Christian theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. Continuing on in Irenaeus's Against Heresies, Tom Velasco, Trevor Adams, and I will look at the more constructive elements of Irenaeus' thought. We will move past his primarily anti-Gnostic history and theology and move towards his positive theological content. Irenaeus is known in history for his defense of apostolic succession, and especially the importance he places on apostolic succession in Rome. Remember that he is writing in the late 2nd century. We are about 150 years after Jesus' death. Among a myriad of topics, we will mention his view of Eucharist, justification, and we will consider broadly what does it mean to do history. This is a main concern of my own, in my PhD program, which styles itself as a program of historical theology, we look at the intersection of history and theology, much like we're doing here. Please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Theology. Let us know if you have any questions, want to know about our, our secondary sources, or anything else we can help you to do as you study and think about theology. Here's our conversation. You know, there's any number of places to dive in. I would uh, respond in a way to Tom's comment. So one thing that I wrote in an email uh, was about the idea of apostolic succession. Mm -hmm. Tom brought up that specifically uh, Irenaeus lays out about the most thorough case that we have for the succession of Rome and affords a a, a sort of a a very important place to that succession – I actually had something like that in mind, not specifically so much about Roman succession, but just the idea of, for Irenaeus, succession is not only important in the Christian sense, it's actually a kind of, um, he's looking at a mirror image in Gnosticism and showing succession among Gnostic teachers, and it actually sort of highlights why this becomes a normative feature of Uh, of Catholic Christianities, I'll say that plural um, of universal Christianities where there's a primacy to succession or there's a primal place afforded to the person who has succession back to one who witnessed uh, to Jesus Christ, his resurrection. Um, It's so important in fact, because all of these other rival claimants to Christianity, they have their own successions. They're just successions to people like Simon Magus or other sorts of things. I just had never thought of um, even apostolic succession and as having a corollary in any other way you know in any other community, yeah, well, I think one thing that so that will make this especially interesting
1: in fact, I was just in a conversation last week, and I think it was actually with one of my students, one of my students said that the first Pope was when Constantine was emperor as We've brought up many times uh, people tend to accuse Constantine of everything. And the reality is absolutely not. The first pope was not when Constantine was emperor. Uh, The bishop of Rome when Constantine was emperor was Sylvester, and he did not actually use the title pope. The first one to use the title pope was Damasus, who would be about 40 years later when Theodosius was emperor. Um, But the notion of the Bishop of Rome being special. And, the no, and again, for our listeners, the Bishop of Rome is the Pope. The notion that he has a privileged position in the church is old. It goes way back. I mean, I think you can make an argument that stuff we read from Clement uh, is there. And then just kind of building off what Chad just said, so Irenaeus, he traces from Peter all the way up to the current Bishop of Rome in his lifetime, which... I can't remember the name that he identifies uh, as the, the, as the uh, present uh, Bishop of Rome. But he is using this as an argument against the Gnostics, saying, look, you Gnostics are teaching a new doctrine. You're teaching something new that has no root in the teachings of Jesus or the first apostles. We know what Jesus taught. Because he taught it to his apostles. He taught it to specifically Peter and Paul, who taught it to, a, you know, to a student who passed it on to his student, who passed it on to his student all the way down to today. So they actually identify Anacletus, or first Linus, then Anacletus, as the guys who Peter and Paul passed their knowledge on to. So that, the, you know, what, what Irenaeus is saying is, look, the doctrine I'm teaching is correct because we have succession from the apostles, And I don't think he would just do that with Rome. I think he would identify any of the number of main churches that had been started by apostles. It just so happens that he uses the Bishop of Rome and identifies a one lineage, starting with Peter and Paul all the way down to his present day, which is probably the main source whereby we get kind of the list of early papal succession. But he uses this as a justification to say, look, we know we have the truth. We can trace it back to Jesus. These guys are novel. Uh, Valentinus, um, Marcion, uh, uh, all of these guys, these Gnostic guys who we've referenced last week, they are teaching something completely new that has no grounding or root uh, in the teachings of Jesus. But for us today, I think we can look at it and say, whoa, here's something that the Catholics really put a lot of stock in. It's clear that he had some kind of a sense that the Bishop of Rome was really important.
0: Yeah, um, we should, I mean, to look specifically at the text, again against heresies, this is the text that we're looking at from Irenaeus. In Book 3, Chapters 1 and 2 and 3 are these primary arguments about apostolic succession. But he begins uh, um, Book 3, Chapter 3, he says... But since it would be too long in a work like this to list the successions in all the churches, we shall take only one of them. And then he says, the church that is greatest, most ancient and known to all, founded and set up uh, by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul at Rome. Um, so, I mean, we could stop there, but he, he does sort of say, you know, you, you re- he recognizes that there are other successions and they are really important.
2: Yes. Yeah, in fact, in uh, Book 3, 12, Paragraph 5, he's, he's talking about, he quotes scripture from Acts about uh, Christ, and, well, it's, this, it's the scene at Pentecost, and he says, These are the voices of the church from which every church had its origin. These are the voices of the metropolis of the citizens of the new covenant, these are the voices of the apostles. These are voices of the disciples of the Lord, the truly perfect, who, after the assumption of the Lord, were perfected by the Spirit and called upon the God who made heaven and earth and the sea, who was announced by the prophets and Jesus Christ his Son, whom God anointed and who knew no other God. So it's like he's just saying, like, these guys in general had orthodoxy, they had right doctrine. And from them, they are the, they are the origin of the church. Essentially, it's it's from them. And I actually thought that that this interesting part where he says they are truly perfect, we might want to talk about a little bit. But uh, just in general, yeah, that passage really is just the importance of, you know, the succession, the apostolic succession from every single one of the disciples. Really, but yeah, he, but he definitely. Did put that you know the most ancient and you know most glorious Peter and Paul. So there's some preference. And if you go to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the New Advent uh, org. If you go to Catholic Encyclopedia, look at Irenaeus' page. It says that, that you know they say in there that two bits of his theology are you know the uh, the Eucharist can be you know their basically their doctrines about the Eucharist can be kind of uh, derived from this document, as well as it says the primacy of the Roman Church. There's definitely probably some weight to it. Yeah. but Well, I think in East,
1: somebody from the East, an Eastern Orthodox, would look at this and say, no, you're claiming way too much because, as Chad read, not you, but the Roman Catholic. I yes. think an Eastern Orthodox person would say that the Roman Catholic is claiming way too much because he does intro this by saying by referencing all of what are called apostolic sees, and that, you know, for our listeners, what that means is a church started by an apostle where the teaching of the apostle was passed on uh, to subsequent bishops and so forth. He references lots of apostolic churches, but he says, I can't list them all, so I'm just going to do the one, the bishop in Rome. And then he says, which is the greatest? But the thing is, the Eastern Orthodox actually acknowledge that Rome has primacy amongst uh, all of the apostolic sees. So the Eastern Orthodox Church, just for our listeners in case uh, they're kind of not aware of the situation here, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church split in the Great Schism, which was, what was that, 1073 or something like that? 54. 1054, 1054. 1054. And the debate really centered on the authority of the Pope. Um, the Pope uh, viewed himself and, and the Western half of the church, the Roman Catholic church viewed the Pope as having a kind of monarchical power in the church. Um, whereas the other churches in the East that had been started by apostles, like at Antioch, at Jerusalem, at Alexandria, um, they all say, no, you don't have monarchical power over us, we are equals, but they would say of him that he is the first amongst equals. So I think what an Eastern Orthodoxer would say uh, when reading this is, no, it doesn't really claim papal authority the way that Catholics claim it, um, but it is acknowledging the Pope's primacy, whereas a Catholic would look at this and say, nope, this is straight up demonstrating
2: uh, papal authority. Just real quick, but just as an aside to that. In general, this whether we count these sorts of things as arguments for, for example, papal authority anyway, is just gonna come down to in general what you consider authority, right? Um I was once if anyone's familiar with William Lane Craig out there listening to this podcast, he's like a contemporary evangelical uh philosopher and apologist, and he's he's wicked smart and all, but like, you know, his theology is mostly backed up by his philosophy, but when he, I remember, was teaching a class on this at his own church, there's uh, recordings of it out there on his podcast called Defenders, and he has a Catholic come in and say, like, you know, none of the church fathers agree with you, and he just goes, well, they could be wrong. And, like, he's willing to say that because he's willing to say, sola scriptura, you know? He's willing to say, and scripture alone is authority. So it's kind of, in general, I guess this thing will always come down to a debate of authority. But if you consider this authoritative, yeah, you're, you're trying to say, even if you consider it authoritative, no, I don't know if this is still a good argument. And that's a good point, because guys,
1: for our audience out there, I often, and we all will, will reference something, and I'll often say, well, that's an interesting point. Like, I'll bring up this passage concerning the authority of the Bishop of Rome. I want to make sure my audience knows I'm not always I'm not always bringing up as an interesting point because I agree with it. I have, as I've said before, I'm an evangelical Protestant. I do not believe in the authority of the Pope in any sense. I mean, so I bring it up. I, I'm very interested by things that seem to contradict what I believe, uh, and I'm very interested where those actually come into the church. But I do hope everybody out there is aware that we do not. We, as Christians, we don't need to feel compelled by what these guys believed. Um, They can be wrong. I don't think of them as authoritative in the same way the Bible is authoritative. And nor would, I mean, you know, so all that to say, I feel comfortable saying he's wrong about something. I just am curious as to how theology evolved in the church. And I am especially, I, I I am curious how our narratives that we create to kind of run down, like people who disagree with us, how they come into being. Uh, because, of course, the narrative that evangelicals often create is well, there was never a pope until Constantine, and then there was a pope. But actually, no, it is rooted deeply in the church. There is something there that we as Christians should wrestle with.
2: Yeah. Well, and I still think it yeah. is important. Yeah. Sorry. You go, Chad.
0: So there was there are two two separate sort of issues that I wanted to raise uh, from from this conversation, and we're talking about papal authority here or primacy, um, and of course the idea of infallibility um, is not till re- Vatican uh, One, um, the first Vatican Council in, in the mid nineteenth century. Uh, or no, yeah, mid nineteenth century. By um, that do you mean the infallibility of the Pope? That doctrine, right? Yeah. And, um, and so I just, you know, raising that point, um, and this is where defining terms becomes important, primacy, first among equals, you know, there's a certain sort of um, unity that might, um, or there's a certain, you know, there's sort of a hierarchy, um, but that isn't infallibility, as is articulated much later uh, in Roman Catholic thought. Just, I wanted to separate that out, and then maybe also what what we're talking about when we're talking about succession and authority and why this succession matters. Not not only are they just holding uh, handing down teachings of various sorts that Jesus taught. Um, I I tend to think of the succession as being important um, because they were witnesses to the resurrection witnesses to the living christ so it's it's almost another way to sort of say um well how do you know christ resurrected right we're thinking we're thinking that this uh writing is in uh it, it is against the heresies it is against valentius and the gnostics who don't take there to be a physical resurrection for christ himself or for jesus of nazareth uh to actually be the christ and to have died on the cross and resurrected and so you need a succession back to that period as a a defense, as a, no, look, I can actually talk to my bishop, and he knows somebody who knows somebody who goes back there. I mean, that's not the only way that that succession is cashed out, but it's at least a feature of the importance of the role. Well, yeah, actually, Irenaeus says it almost exactly how you said it. Several times, he
1: says, I heard a presbyter who heard it from another presbyter who knew John the Apostle, or something like that. It really is kind of just simply a statement about what we've been taught and how we can say that this has been passed on by these earlier people.
2: Well, and just psychologically, this is super actually compelling to me to think, I should say psychologically from their perspective, if you're there, you know, and yeah, literally this dude knew a dude who knew a dude who knew any name of, name an apostle, especially if it's a big name, you're going to be like, pretty stoked on that and you're going to think that that's something that should continue in general and i wonder though i mean stuff like there being another apostle chosen for judas uh as we see in acts where they kind of what do they they cast lots right and yeah. then matthias right. is yeah. so there's a kind of this also succession of an apostle in kind of in spirit i guess i mean it comes into play as well and then there's whole the whole paul and him calling himself an apostle and some people arguing about that and him defending himself as an apostle makes me wonder though. It makes me wonder about this. And yeah, it's just like you said, I'm I'm extremely curious as to how this all evolved because could some American, not at all related, you know, to any uh, apostolic father in any way, uh, not an associate of an associate of an associate, you know, hundreds of links back to some, apostle just be you know in the apostolic succession today and go form a church um
1: well that's what that's yeah. what people do claim that's exactly yeah that's what i mean that's what joseph smith claims or claimed right i mean he right. would have considered himself kind of an apostle in a sense oh yeah um, that's what a, he
2: thinks he's a prophet
0: yeah
1: right, and yeah. kind of what a lot of people who came up out of the second great awakening in the 1800s who fancied themselves prophets, or apostles in that traditional sense. Uh, But what I think is interesting is, doesn't matter what group comes up, everybody is trying to restore or bring back to what was originally taught. They're trying to go back to the original. And even here, one of the things that's so compelling about reading Irenaeus and the guys we've read beforehand, Justin and and so on, um, is there is a certain degree, even though, as I said earlier, I don't feel compelled to believe what these guys believed because I don't think they're authoritative in the same way the Bible is. I myself want to go back to see what did the first guys teach? Because there is an authority in that. There is a sense that, nice. hey, these guys were closer to the first, the original, so they probably have it right, or at least they have it more right, perhaps, than I do. Right, right? Yeah. And I, I think that that's the story of Protestantism and Evangelicalism. Protestantism and Evangelicalism, it's whole, or I should say Protestants in general, it is all a movement to, quote, go back to what was originally taught. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that something corrupt had come in, and we're trying to go back to what was originally taught because the corruption was destructive. Um, And it's the same thing, not just with my own tradition, um, because that's true within each Protestant movement, right? Lutherans were trying to go back, and then the Anabaptists come and say, well, you didn't go back far enough. And, you know, Pentecostals the same thing. Um, but that's exactly what Mormons are doing or, you know, groups that I don't agree with, uh, they're in their minds. They're going back to the original.
2: Right.
0: And there, there are different ways to tell the Christian story though. There is also sort of, I mean, progressive revelation. I mean, you wouldn't get, you it's, it's interesting. You might not get the teaching of papal infallibility if you didn't have some idea of progress, uh, within yeah. Christian teaching. Um, so it's not entirely let's go back to the original thinkers and but what one thing I mean I so you know so there's I, I don't know just to say that there are different ways and and actually one thing you know i'm I'm in the middle of my studies here, and one thing that we're I'm taking a class on how we do historiography, how do we write history and you know and so one thing we're looking at are just different ways that people go about telling this and You know, one thing that I've become even suspicious of my own mindset or wonder even in my own mindset where, you know, where like if I'm just taking uh, or if I believe that, like every time we come up to a new problem in the church, if I, you know, do I just sort of use the tools that are available in my culture? Do I think about things the way my culture thinks or do I try to think about it the way that the church has always thought about it? Um, And, you know, where where am I coming up with my, you know justifications and my rationalities, and how do I tell the story um, of my, you know, of of the church, um, and that will inform how I respond to a a given circumstance. That sounds really theoretical. I'm not sure that it'll be helpful to everyone, but it's one thing I've been thinking about.
1: Well, you know, when you first started to bring that up, my gut reaction was to just say, nope, don't agree. When you said, uh, well, there's got to be a certain degree of, or you could look at it as having a certain degree of progressive revelation that that's one way to look at the narrative of Christianity. My gut reaction was to go, Nope, Nope, not so. But as I, after a moment's reflection, I thought, well, of course you have to, to some degree, because Christianity is by, I mean, by its existence is a kind of progressive revelation because the Jews pre Christ had no notion of these truths that we embrace of, I mean, I mean, yeah, you could make the argument that there were prophecies embedded in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus, but it's clear that the vast majority of Jews, and, and I think a good argument could be made that none of them had any idea that it would look like what you know we assert that it looks like, right? So there must be some degree of progressive revelation. If you're, I mean, you have to believe in a certain degree of, Christian, of progressive revelation to be a Christian at all. That's a good point.
2: I I have been struck though, I have to say. I have been struck by just how, like, Catholic the church, when I mean, like, Roman Catholic, like, how Catholic the church looks just from doing all our readings. Like, I have been a bit, like, surprised. Because I, personally, see, I'm the non-expert on this podcast. I'm not a reason to listen to this podcast at all. Uh, <laughs> it's just all Chad and Tom. But... So this is my first time reading all this, and yeah, I mean, just like just as a first impression, not like I have an argument and all these passages and and you know deep you know study on the passages, like because because you were making some good comments about what was really being said about the primacy of Rome, but but still, you know, I haven't thought that far, but just yeah, it was just like a first read. I'm like, wow, this does sound like really Catholic. It sounds like these guys were. Bunch of like modern day like Roman Catholics that I know. It's like I don't know. It's yeah. It's
1: it's funny you say that because as I was sitting down, <laughs> I was thinking this. I was thinking it's crazy to me how much reading Irenaeus and Justin uh, and really some of the previous guys seems like a radical hybrid of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and dispensational modern evangelicalism. I mean, not dispensational per se, but I mean, the whole second half, uh, or all of book five that we read today is embracing, it's eschatological. It's all about eschatology. And the eschatology, although not dispensational, and I know our listeners may not be familiar with that term, um, and I really can't go into a lot of detail about what that means, but, so, I guess I'll simplistically put it this way. The church fathers clearly seem to embrace what is called what you might call a replacement theology. The idea that the church replaces Israel uh, as God's people, whereas dispensationalists believe that different at different times, God had picked Israel and sometimes the church, depending on what period of time as his people. So Irenaeus is not dispensational, but aside from that, his theology looks, or his eschatology looks, just like a modern evangelicals. I mean, he had, he's a premillennialist. He believes that Jesus is going to come back and reign literally for a thousand years. He makes an argument that you shouldn't interpret prophetic passages and Revelation, and um, that you shouldn't make arguments. Sorry, those are my text messages. I, I don't know how to turn it off on my computer. <laughs> um, uh. <laughs> but he, he, he makes the argument that Revelation and Daniel need to not be allegorized, that as much as possible you interpret it literally. He believes in the Antichrist. His narrative of the Antichrist is what um, modern evangelicals believe, that he's going to make himself a world ruler and he's going to sit in the temple of God, that he's going to destroy the world that Jesus is going to return and usher in this new millennial kingdom. I mean, it's like I'm going back and reading old Chuck Smith books about the end of time, right? So that all sounds super fundamentalist, oh, super yeah. fundamentalist. But then his view of the church sounds a little bit more, not quite what I would think of as Roman Catholic, but more Eastern Orthodox, that the church is authoritative, that and he like he has this implication that the church is the only place you can get truth. Right. That you cannot go outside of the church. You can't. You can't have that personal time with God alone and get revelation. You have to get it in the context of the church. Right. Um, and all of that sounds very Eastern Orthodox. His view of apostolic succession sounds very Eastern Orthodox. And other than that, the one other thing is he clearly believes that salvation is partly by works. That there is a works element in salvation. Uh, which seems pretty consistent with a lot of the church fathers. Um, he does not identify faith alone as the vehicle of salvation. That that there is a le- like in this, he actually says there is no salvation
0: outside of keeping the ten commandments. You must keep the ten commandments
1: uh, if you are to be saved.
2: Well,
0: um, I want to turn. Uh, I'm going to look at. I want to look at something real quick that's uh, pretty spelled out in book three, uh, book three, chapter four, one and two. Um, to it, it will follow one of your points from sort of maybe a more Eastern Orthodox perspective, as you were saying it, but what does it mean for the truth to reside in the church or the importance of uh, going to the church? You know, I mean, one thing that is difficult for sort of a postmodern, a post-Enlightenment culture is suspicion of authority, um, suspicion of institutions, suspicion uh, of of just anybody being above you. You are the sole arbiter of truth, right? The individual (laughs) is the sole locus uh, of truth, right? No, you know, and, and that's the most, the most important thing is what I think, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, uh, and I, I mean, I act this way. I get it because I do it sometimes. And, and then I want to chase it myself, but he says uh, in four one, but love what belongs to the church and hold fast the tradition of truth, and then and one a little bit down there, he says, and if the apostles had not left us the scriptures, would it not be best to follow the sequence of the tradition which they transmitted to those to whom they entrusted the churches? Um, and that one, um, he actually even raises the hypothetical: What if we didn't even have scripture? Uh, well, we would just follow this tradition of truth. where and- does he
1: raise that hypothetical?
0: That's in. Uh, at the very end of four one. And then if the apostles had not left us, the scriptures would it not be best to follow the sequence of the tradition? Oh yeah. There we go. Had not left us writings. You're right. Wait, chapter four of book three. Wow. Against yeah. Sola scriptura. But what it, what it's interesting to me, aside from the debates between Protestants, uh, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox is what is this tradition that they hold? What is it that's being passed down? Um, and, uh, you know, it might be the same thing of what we eventually call the rule of faith um, and, and theology that's very important, which eventually just becomes the scriptures. But at this point, I'm not convinced that it is the same thing. Um, and then in 4.2, he says, they believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth, everything in them, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin, to unite man with God and suffered under Pontius Pilate, rose again taken up in glory will come in glory as savior of those who are saved and judge of those who are judged sending into eternal fire. Those who disfigure the truth and despise the father and his own advent. Um, It's a kind of um, restatement of the night of the apostles creed. Uh, Interestingly, the sending into eternal fire fire and hell don't make it into either uh, the apostles or Nicene creeds. Um, So we think that he's writing, probably before there was a creed. Most people think the Apostles' Creed, the oldest creed we have, is is late second century. Um so maybe a little bit after this. But um but that seems to be the summary of the tradition as far as I can tell for Irenaeus. So this is what he to me, this is what he thinks the church can pass down uh from you know, through the Apostles. Um Jesus Christ, Son of God, flesh, died, resurrected Get that straight. That's what you need to believe.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which, by the way, I mean, that is at the core of everything that we've read so far. I mean, at bare minimum, the key thing that our, that the writers we've read, every one of them up to this point is, listen, God became flesh, real flesh. He died. He resurrected He really resurrected, literally. Like, that is the thing that is just being harped on over and over again, which the main argument of everything we've read today, books three through four, in essence is the same argument he's been making the whole time for this entire work, which is just over and over again, listen, everybody, Jesus is God come in the flesh. He is literally God in the flesh, which I think is interesting because... Before too long, or maybe I shouldn't say before too long, it might actually be a while, we're going to stumble upon the Arian heresy. And the Arian heresy is going to teach that Jesus is not God come in the flesh, that Jesus is a created being. And I find it interesting that early in the church, the real issue that Christians struggled with wasn't how Jesus could be God, it was how God could be man, right? It was how Jesus mm-hmm. could be a man or how Christ could be a man. That was the initial struggle. Later it will be how can Jesus actually be the creator? But early on it's how can the creator become a man? That's the, that's the issue. So the focus is just over and over again to say, no, listen, Jesus is the creator become man. He is flesh. He really is flesh and blood and body and human. Uh, and that becomes – that's like the driving force of everything that Irenaeus is saying is we – is that Jesus himself was in fact human. And then the corollary to that is – and I, I find this just so fascinating that our destiny is not to become disembodied spirits floating around in the netherworld. Our final resting place is not heaven. This is he, – it's like if there are two things, he harps on twice. We are not meant for heaven. <laughs> we are meant to have a resurrected physical bodies, real physical bodies living on a real physical world that God doesn't just redeem the spiritual. He redeems the physical as well as the spiritual. That the whole story of Jesus becoming a man is to say that God is redeeming all of uh, his creative order, meaning not just the spirit, but also the physical part as well, um, which I think is... It's something that I think is kind of lost, even a little today. I mean, N.T. Wright, who we've mentioned a lot on the show, he makes the argument that modern Christianity is kind of Gnostic because we do think of heaven as the place where we're going to go. We think of the spiritual as being somehow uh, inherently better than the physical when God is God over all of it. There is evil spirit and there is evil flesh, but flesh itself wasn't meant to be evil. It's good. God made it.
2: He definitely also affirms, and this was an early piece of Christology. I was actually really trying to find it for some reason. I can't find where it was, but I do remember him saying something about uh, Jesus and Christ uh, being basically the same person. To say that they're
1: not basically they are. They, I mean, he's, they that's are, his because <laughs> the the Gnostics say that that they're different.
2: That's the key thing. The Gnostics say that the Christ. And Jesus are two different persons. And I guess even beyond person, like to say that the, he wants to say that they're the same being, you know. He yes. Wants to say, you know, uh, do not confuse, you know, do not confuse, basically. And so it's, book, yeah, book I mean, th- this is, this makes sense. Oh, sorry. Do you know where it is?
0: Book, book three, chapter nine, uh, section three. Yeah. For the Christ did not then descend into Jesus, nor was one the Christ, the other Jesus, But the Word of God, the Savior of all, who rules heaven and earth, who is Jesus, as we have shown before, who took flesh and was anointed with the Spirit by the Father, became Jesus Christ. See, and I I don't remember the exact uh, council that
2: kind of really came to terms with Jesus' – you know, the current Christology we hold as Orthodox, but – Chalcedon in
1: 451.
2: Okay. Council of Chalcedon in 451,
1: which – is 300 years, or yeah, 300 years roughly after what we're reading right now.
2: But it kind of doesn't surprise me that they came to this conclusion based on like what I'm reading right here. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, not only were they probably just as enamored with apostolic succession as Irenaeus was, but they probably also, regardless, they were probably just reading Irenaeus and going, yeah, this guy knew this guy who knew this guy, and look what he's saying about yeah. know, Christ. So this yeah. is definitely. Very influential. Yeah.
0: Well, Irenaeus. Well, that's interesting. Go ahead. I, I I almost think that Tom might be making the same point I'm about to make, which is, you know, Irenaeus is not actually in the succession. He doesn't look at himself as you know one of the significant inheritors. He's just a commentator. It's funny you mention that because Irenaeus actually
1: uses some of the same language that coming out of Chalcedon in 451 is considered orthodox language that. The Godhead is not. He actually says, and I I don't have it marked. I have it marked, but it'd be hard for me to find it. He says it's not that the Godhead is taken into humanity, but that the man is taken into the Godhead. You know what I'm referencing there, Chad? Um, I don't know uh, if you can find an electronic version, but that's that's language that I hear you know people embracing Chalcedon use all the time. I actually don't know what the distinction means frankly for our audience I'm if you heard me say it and go what did he mean I have to be honest I don't understand the distinction but it is one that I know people who hold to an orthodox view of the union of God and man in Christ um have have used that formula that mm. that godhead is not taken down into man but the manhood is taken up into god uh whatever oh. the distinction is
0: I I mean, yeah, this I mean it's uh I mean that that's all well it it very closely uh it sounds almost like you're saying the uh well deification. Um Well uh, I saw you know, to put not, that
1: in the email, but I haven't stumbled upon that word anywhere. And yeah, and uh, I'm only using it here in the context of of Jesus, that Jesus, the manhood of Jesus is taken up into God. That's
2: the language.
0: For Trevor, our audience, you put on your Twitter the quote I was thinking of, I think. Oh, yeah.
2: I don't remember where I grabbed that from. So, again,
1: for our audience, um, Chad is referencing a theological concept. So, Chad here is actually referencing the concept uh, of deification uh, or theosis that the Eastern Orthodox uh, hold to, which is the idea that the redemption of man is in some sense a deifying of him, not actually making us into gods, not like in the sense that we become gods, but rather that we're transformed into the image of Christ, who is God. So it's that's the language that the Eastern Orthodox often use concerning redemption, and they prefer that over the Western Church, which uses the word justification more commonly. Um, but I was actually curious because Chad, I, I didn't, I don't remember stumbling upon that term.
0: Well, I know, I, this is not, this is not kept the location on it. Trevor has it quoted, um, is uh, he who was the son of God became the son of man, that man might become the son of God. But I got to figure out where it is. Yeah, I'm
2: sorry. And I don't remember where I grabbed it from. I think, uh, I know it's in chapter
1: 18, section seven. Um, and here he says, therefore, as I have already said, he caused man to cleave to and to become one with God. For unless man had overcome the enemy of man, the enemy would not have been legitimately vanquished. And again, unless it had been God who had freely given salvation, we could never have possessed it securely. And unless man had been joined to God, he could never have become a partaker of incorruptibility. Uh, for it was incumbent upon the mediator between God and men by his relationship to both to bring both to friendship and concord and present man to God while he revealed God to man. I love that text. What it in essence is pointing out is that the redeemer of mankind had to be both God and man. That the only way for reconciliation between man and God to happen is for God and flesh, for God and humanity to commingle. It's the only way for God to be reconciled to us, and for us to be reconciled to God. Um, so I, I think he has a really uh, well thought out, complex view of what Christ has done for us.
0: Here's a slightly less, um, it's a less clear way of saying what Trevor had quoted, but he does also say Jesus Christ. Are uh, this is in book five in the second preface or in the preface at the very end, um, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who be- because of his immeasurable love became what we all o- we are in order to make us what he is. Now that's sufficiently vague to possibly yeah. refer to righteousness. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't clearly state what as Tom defined theosis or deification. I mean, you could read it that way. It's not required that you do.
1: Yeah, well, I don't think, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect to find anything that you could be required to take. I mean, the notion of theosis is a complex, very thought out, uh, a fleshed out doctrine that clearly, if it has its beginnings in Irenaeus, isn't going to be fully fleshed out here. Um, I don't have any problem saying that the beginnings of theosis are found in Irenaeus for sure. Like I think that passage you just read is a a great example of maybe an early concept of theosis and clearly a passage like that would be something that an Eastern Orthodox uh scholar would or theologian could easily
0: take as kind of a you know a precursor for theosis. And I'm not sure on the reception of Irenaeus but um I mean he is of Lyon I mean he's the West right? I mean so it would be a little unique for there to be that I mean, to be a developed concept of theosis, which becomes anachronistic to theology in the West. True, but he is from Smyrna in the East, right? So he That's is true. from
1: Turkey, but then in his maturity, he's writing in the West in France. And what is today France?
2: So can we talk about then the other, you know, probably biggest, or maybe maybe I'm wrong about this. One of the other really big the theological concepts brought up, which is the, uh, his writings about the Eucharist.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I heard your reference to that. I, he, he doesn't say a lot about it. He has one section, but I feel like I, I could see how a Roman Catholic could take what he says about the Eucharist and say that he's teaching uh, Catholic doctrine. But again, it's re- I think it's sufficiently vague, the little bit. He, he has a one chapter on it uh, that I can recall. Um and in it, he gives a um, what. What I can say, it's in chapter, it's in chapter yeah, seventeen, section five of book five. He talks about um, the Eucharist, and he says, uh, you know, he, he quotes the, the you know the the commonly quoted passages from the Gospels. This is my body, and he says the cup likewise, which is a part of the creation to which we belong. He confessed to be his blood, and he taught, and here's what I thought was significant, the new oblation of the new covenant, which the church receiving from the apostles offers to God throughout all the world. So the reason he brings up the Eucharist is, again, part of his argument about the importance of physicality. The Eucharist is physical. It's flesh. It's blood. And so he's saying, look, Jesus gave us a physical thing to do. And so, you gnostics who say physical is bad, you're wrong because look at the one right that's given to us is physical, and he calls it a new sacrifice. So that's one thing I think that would coincide with a uh, that would coincide with a Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist is that it's a new sacrifice because um, that is kind of how um, Catholics do treat uh, the the Eucharist is as a contemporary sacrifice.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's get really uh, like dancing on the head of a pin. But there is a conversation at some point to be had about Roman Catholicism and the perpetual sacrifice of Christ on the altar. Um, The eternal. And whether or not that's actually what's going on in a Roman Catholic service um, or not. I mean, that's usually the Protestant claim is that uh, Roman Catholics sacrifice Christ again and again and again. um, And. Scripture says there was a sacrifice, one one sacrifice. Um, Now I'm drawing a blank on it. Sacrifice once for all. Hey, by the way, I need to amend what I
1: said earlier and uh, say that Trevor was right. It is actually, so there were two two sections that I stumbled upon and put notes for. I only remembered one, but he was right. Book five, chapter two, there is a talk of the Eucharist. Same context, but he does say a bit more. And here Mm -hmm. he says, the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. um, Oh, sorry. Having received the word of God, so that is speaking of Jesus, the word of God becomes the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. So also our bodies being nourished by it and deposited in the earth and suffering decomposition there shall rise at their appointed time, the word of God granting them resurrection to the glory of God, even the Father who freely gives this mortal immortality to this corruptible incorruption. So the two things that I think are significant there are one, he does say the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. At the same time, he could mean metaphorically. I mean, he doesn't like elucidate. Um, He doesn't
2: contrast it with a potentially opposite view. Well, but listen to this though. In in that same uh, book, same chapter in Mm -hmm. uh, part two, he says for blood can only come from the veins and flesh and whatsoever else makes up the substance of man, such as the word of God was actually made by his own blood he redeems us. And also his apostles declare, and then it says Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the remission of sins. Yes, that's him
1: asserting, that's just part of the overall argument that Jesus was actual flesh. So he's saying blood can only come from a body. Right.
2: And so that's why, I mean, it is a bit, though, Yeah, I mean, it seems like he's a bit, though, convinced. You know, he's trying to say, blood, we're saved by this blood. Blood that can only come from a body, obviously. And he goes, and then I think it's kind of like him now saying next. And also, that blood is really present. Oh,
1: I don't see that leap. I I feel like he's going to a totally second. Earlier, he's just making the argument, again, listen, Jesus really had a body, really had blood.
2: And then later on, he's going, I mean look, we actually eat a real Eucharist. But he says we are we are his members and we are nourished by means of the creation. So, I mean, the body is the created part. So he seems to really think we are nourished, like spiritually nourished. I mean, you could argue, I guess, he means we're nourished by the creation of maybe it's the grapes and the bread, I guess. But uh, why would he put it just right after that Colossians quote? I, it does seem to me suspicious. Um, I'm not this. compelled by that
1: at all. I don't, I mean, it's, you know, we we often bring up things that come to mind. There, I don't see any word connection that makes his statements about the Eucharist to say anything about the body and the blood, aside from that one phrase that I quoted, for the word of God becomes the Eucharist, that bit, which is the body and blood of Christ. But yeah. I don't see any other connection to which, what he said before. Which I'm... section is that from, by the way? The same exact section. Right
2: there. Uh, is it from... The...
1: Right here, it's section two. Two, okay, because yeah. in
2: three, he also yeah says when therefore the mingled cup and the oh, manufactured bread. Oh, okay, yeah, receives the word of God. Uh, the Eucharist uh, of the blood and the body of Christ is made. So yeah, I mean, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm not saying I, I'm not saying that he's not saying that the body and blood is the Eucharist, but so do the Gospels. That's the issue. I, is, I think
2: I think this, at the very least, though, does say something about this idea of real presence. However, you hash that out,
1: I don't. But that's the thing: is I don't think it needs to any more than the gospels. So, so again, if you're a Catholic, you're going to go real presence, and if you're a Protestant, you're like, I don't see any reason to, to think that. Well, I mean, there's even a,
2: a real presence way. There's a real presence that even a Protestant can uh, grab onto here, in the sense that if they think this is a spiritual thing. That just Christ is with us when we take the Eucharist or, or something like that, or maybe even what some of the early Protestants did think. Like,
1: I, so Calvin I, believes in a spiritual presence. Calvin would believe but, in a spiritual whereas presence, whereas Zwingli doesn't. But what I'm saying is, I think Zwingli could read this and go, "Oh yeah, I agree with him completely." I'm not saying hmm. I'm not saying you can't read that as a Catholic and say, "Oh, there's a presence," but he isn't contrasting. He's doing nothing to contrast. Which so every Christian, whether they're they believe in a real presence, or if they think it's totally metaphor, they use the exact same terminology. So I don't see any terminology in here that, I find, that I'm compelled to think that he believed in a real presence. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm just saying I don't see anything here that makes me feel like... I mean, Zwingli would write in this exact same way, and he clearly didn't, which we know this because he asserts, right? Because there's a contrast.
2: Okay, how about just one last one last bit? It's still from section 3. He does not speak these words of some spiritual and invisible man, for a spirit has not bones nor flesh, Luke 24, 39. But he refers to that dispensation by which the Lord became an actual man, consisting of flesh and nerves and bones, that flesh which is nourished by the cup which is his blood and receives increase from the bread which is his body. So what do you, I mean... So I don't know. what it, I would it say right there is strange to me. Well, was.
1: all I would say right there is is honestly that bit sounds nonsensical. And let me explain why. He okay. starts off by talking about the physical body of Christ, mm-hmm. saying what it is. His argument is it's not just spiritual, it's physical. He then goes that flesh, meaning Jesus's flesh, is nourished by the cup, which is his blood. What are you talking about? Like I'm not saying it doesn't I'm saying that doesn't make any sense.
2: I think the cup uh that oh you know what here we go i need to read in my brackets here the flesh part is kind of looks like it's added in after the fact so that which is nourished by the cup which is his blood and receives increase from the bread which is his body i guess how you'd read it what the actual words just right there are yeah
1: i'm not certain but but you know i gotta go
2: oh sorry okay (laughs) well okay what does the anglican think real quick Um, via Medea, whatever you want. (laughs) Which,
1: incidentally, by the way, for the most part, I'm okay with that myself. I I don't, I don't care. I I actually think one of, I can't remember who it was. One of the previous things we read, I thought, did, um, seem to support a view of
0: transubstantiation. Chad, do you remember what piece that was? No, but I did want to get in one more little bit. Um, Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Um, on a totally separate note, he talks about the role of the Virgin Mary and as a Protestant, I'm always terrified of what to make of Mary. Her sole place in theology, as far as I was ever taught was just that she did not have sex before she had Jesus. And that was kind of her only role. Um, and I, I just thought it was interesting. He makes this sort of case, you know, Paul says in, in Romans, so all died in Adam. So all are made alive in Christ. Um, uh, Irenaeus does this little thing with Mary where he kind of says that Mary is kind of the recapitulation of Eve. Um, and Mary sort of sets straight what Eve got wrong, Eve disobedient for she disobeyed. Um, and then Mary, um, you know, Mary, you know, the Magnificat, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord. She sort of accepts, uh, what the angel tells her. Um, and, uh, And yeah, so, so to the, he he says it like this. So to the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by Mary's obedience for what the Virgin Eve had bound by her unfaith, the Virgin Mary loosed by her faith. I don't know. It's just a nice way to recapture um, uh, sort of some of the flack that Eve's taken um, that Mary can kind of help her out just like Jesus helps Adam out. I just, and, and it leads into his whole discussion of, Um, original sin as it were which he actually locates in the earth which I find fascinating Um, he says God actually curses the earth not Adam Um, and so it's a slightly different uh, and doesn't use the term original sin as we know it from Augustine but I just thought it was a cool way to look at some of the I mean you know connection between Eve and Mary yeah and
1: what's more is is it's the first time you see kind of a I mean, I don't know, a significant importance being put on Mary that you don't find in earlier church writings. I mean, again, it doesn't look like the doctrine that is espoused today, but it's still a significant move forward in terms of Mary theology.
2: Maryology, yeah.
0: Maryology and just, I mean, you know, there's charges of patriarchy and overemphasis on men and various things. I mean, clearly Irenaeus is concerned with you know at what goes on in women's obedience and disobedience as much as men's disobedience i mean it, you know it's it's not so one dimensional
1: yeah
2: yeah yeah
1: there's one thing i'm out of we're out of time but i i would really like to flush out with no time he wrote a lot about free will and yeah for lack of a better term like a sin nature and he seems to reject it i mean not out of hand not to say that there isn't a propensity to sin but he just straight up says the only way you can hold somebody morally accountable is if they have freedom Yeah. and God gives you freedom. And if there's anything, and and we are only accountable in those things in which we are completely free. And he says, there is no person who's created bad. That's what he says. If there was, he says, God couldn't hold him accountable.
2: Yeah. And it, it did kind of sound like a, a disagreement with like total depravity. It was. Yeah. And so I, I was like, Whoa, striking. Yeah. It almost yeah.
1: sounds a little Pelagian in a sense for our, our listeners. <laughs> we'll get into Pelagius, but basically let's just say he believed people didn't have a sin nature.
0: Well, well, if there's anything that we could accomplish through the reading of the church fathers, a taking down of Dutch reform interpretations of John Calvin, um, <laughs> you know, that would be a pretty, good, that might be a pretty good achievement. Yeah. Yeah. Now
2: this has been, this is a being a good discussion about all these old doctrines. And I think like we mentioned authority, the very first episode or the second episode or something like that. And it's just kind of cool how it's just coming back up. Yes, yeah. it's, it is really interesting how we interpret these and pick the theologies we like and don't like from the early fathers
1: Yeah, and it's going to keep coming back up
2: yep
0: yep. thanks for listening again this week this was our second and final week in Irenaeus next week we will look at the Apostles Creed and then we will move on to Athenagoras and move a little more east in terms of the theology that we are looking at we will be back next week with that podcast don't forget to check out our Facebook page facebook.com slash history of Christian theology